Well, there was an interesting story that I read about how a compass saved the lives of some sailors in World War II. There was an American merchant ship named the SS Alcoa Guide, and this was sailing from New Jersey to the Caribbean. And on its way, a German submarine surfaced and opened fire on this merchant ship. I mean, this merchant ship has no defense, right? So the German ship surfaces and shoots a torpedo and strikes the hull of the ship. The ship catches on fire and it starts to sink. It's 300 miles off the coast of North Carolina and immediately the, the crew scrambles. They are trying to escape and do whatever they can to save their lives. There were two options available and some men got into a wooden lifeboat and other men got into an inflatable raft. Fortunately, the wooden lifeboat came equipped with a compass. So the crew on the lifeboat, uh, on the wooden lifeboat, they used the compass and they sailed towards some shipping lanes in hopes that they would be spotted there at some point. Fortunately, after three days, the lifeboat was indeed spotted by a plane and they were rescued. Every crew member was rescued on that lifeboat. However, there were some other crew members on the inflatable raft, and that did not have a compass on it. And since it didn't have a compass, it drifted aimlessly in the ocean. They were found, they were found three weeks later, but only one person survived, and even he was barely clinging to life. In a survival scenario like this, having a compass can be the difference between life and death. It's a trustworthy device because it's always pointing north. Now, similarly, as I told the kids a little bit ago, in God's kindness, he has given us his word, which acts as a compass for us. And just as a compass always points north, God's word always points us to his promises. And his promises, which are fixed and certain, they act as north for us as we navigate through this life. Now, in our text this morning that we read, we're going to consider the promise of all promises. This is the central passage in the book of Genesis, and this passage has story arcs to other points of scripture. So it is extremely important. The promise of the seed that was given in Genesis chapter 3 is now explicitly revealed to Abraham. And this specific promise served as magnetic north for Abraham and his family throughout their journeys in the rest of the book of Genesis. Now, even though, as we read, and we'll come to see, Abraham did not know how the promises would be fulfilled in his life. Nevertheless, fixing his gaze upon the promises of God, it helped him. It helped him trust God, it helped him obey God, and it helped him hope in God. And my hope and prayer for us this morning as we consider this passage together is that no matter how hard the circumstances are in your life, that you would see that fixing your eyes on the certainty of God's faithful promises would help you trust Him, obey Him, 
and hope in him. I have three points this morning. The context of the promise, verses 27 to 32. The content of the promise, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And the response to the promise, verses 4 through 10. And then we'll conclude with some application. So first, let's consider the context of the promise, verses 27 to 32. Now, the life of Abraham starts a decisively new chapter in our journey through the book of Genesis. In chapters 1 through 11 so far, we have learned about God creating the world out of nothing. He created mankind, male and female, in his image to represent him on this earth. Mankind was commanded to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all the earth. And he placed man and woman in the garden, and there they experienced peace and joy in an unhindered fellowship with God. That is, until man explicitly disobeyed God's command to not eat from a specific tree, and in doing so, severed the sweet fellowship that they enjoyed with God. Now, in spite of this, God's plan from the beginning was always that one day, he would reverse the curse through the offspring of Eve and restore this fellowship between God and man. But we've seen in the first 11 chapters, this plan has always seemed to be in jeopardy. Always seemed to be in jeopardy. First, they thought Abel would be the promised seed, but he was killed by his brother Cain. God still had a plan. Eve had another child, Seth, from whom the promise of the godly line would continue. But even then, within a few generations, we see humanity becomes corrupt, and God decides to send a flood to purge the earth from evil. Even in the midst of judgment, we see God's mercy as he saves and preserves Noah's family. And he does so so that the promise of the seed would remain alive. Still, the promise is in jeopardy when the wickedness of man continued. And last week, we learned that they decided to build a tower at Babel. And they did this to defy God and make a great name for themselves. Again, God brings his judgment against sin. He confused their languages and language and dispersed them throughout the whole earth. What is going to happen with God's promise? Yet the promise of the seed would remain alive through the descendants of Shem. This brings us to our passage this morning in chapter 11, verse 27, which begins with the story of Terah, who is a direct descendant of Shem in the godly line of the seed. Now, Terah was the father of Abram. Uh, I may use the word Abram and Abraham interchangeably this morning. He is called Abram in this passage, but later God changes his name and gives him the name Abraham, but uh, I just may go back and forth. But in case you're not sure, it's the same person I'm talking about today. So Terah, who is the father of Abram, he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is basically ancient ba Babylon, or what would be considered modern-day Iraq today. So Terah is the father of three children. He has Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran ends up dying, but he has a son named Lot, might be familiar with Lot. Lot is Abram's nephew, and he's going to play an important role in Abram's journeys in the next several chapters. So the text here tells us that Terah leads his family towards Canaan. 
but they end up making a pit stop in Haran where Terah dies. In this first section, I just kind of want to highlight one significant detail. It's in verse 30, which tells us that Abram's wife, Sarai, was barren with no child. Now, this is an important detail because it's going to be a significant obstacle that God would have to overcome to fulfill his promises to Abram. And you can see already in these first few verses of this section that, that the stage has been set for God to manifest his glory by fulfilling his promises amid a hopeless and barren situation. With that, we come to chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And this is our second point, the content of the promise, the content of the promise. Now that we understand the context of the promise to Abram, let's consider the content of the promise. Let's read verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, God's promise to Abram is contingent on him leaving his country, his father's house, and going to the land of Canaan. And this is followed by God promising Abram four distinct things. There are four distinct promises in these promises given to Abram. One, God says, I will make you a great nation. Two, he says, I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Three, he says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who dishonor you. And four, he says, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Notice that the decisive actor and cause in these blessings is God himself. God says on four separate occasions, I will I will. So God is not only the architect of this promise, but he is also taken upon himself to fulfill this promise. God is the one who's going to bring the blessing of a great nation. God is the one who's going to make Abram's name great. And God is the one who is going to bless the nations through Abram. Now, this promise of blessing is not some random act of blessing on a random man and his family. This promise, as we're going to see revealed in the rest of the New Testament and um, the Old and New Testament, is the promise of God's eternal and sovereign plan to reverse the curse upon creation that has been in place since Genesis 3. But you might be wondering, as you would rightfully be wondering, how does the blessing of land and a nation and a great name have anything to do with reversing the curse? Why are those things even there? What does that have to do with reversing the curse? Well, the clarity of that will be revealed throughout the storyline of Scripture. But one thing we can see clearly here, we know that sin is an obstacle to God's blessings. But we see here that God is choosing to bless a sinful man, and through the sinful man, bless all the families of the earth that are also sinful. 
So the underlying assumption under God's blessing, under, under God's blessing is that God must include a remedy for their sinfulness for them to receive his blessings. And we'll see that fleshed out throughout the story of the Bible, but you can even see right here that blessing by God implies that their sin problem has to be taken care of. And there's going to be many obstacles in the way for these promises to be fulfilled. Sarai's barrenness is certainly a big promise, as we've seen already. But the sinfulness of humanity is going to be the biggest obstacle that stands in the way of God's promised blessing to Abram and the nations. Regardless of this, Abram believed that God is faithful to his promises so even with these obstacles that probably clouded his mind, he believed that God would fulfill these promises. And he set his gaze on God's promises. And they became like fixed north for Abram and his family as they headed towards the land of Canaan. Now that we better understand the context of the promise and the content of the promise, We'll look at verses 4 through 9, and we'll see Abram's response to the promise. And what we see is that Abram's response to God's faithful promise is one of trust, obedience, and hope in God. Trust in God, obedience in God, and hope in God. And we'll see each of those facets in his response. Let's look at verse 4. It says this, So Abram went... As the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Notice that there is an inseparable link, relationship between faith and obedience. Abram demonstrates his faith in God through his obedience to God. It says Abraham went as the Lord told him. He left Haran where he had made a pit stop and he headed towards Canaan exactly as God had told him. Now, not only did Abram respond to the promise with trust and obedience, as we see in verses 4 and 5, but he also responded with hope in God, as we see in verses 6 through 9. Now, these verses, if you read them, they tell us that Abram reaches the land of Canaan and he passes through the land and he builds several altars throughout the land. First, he does so in the north at Shechem. In the north of the land, he builds an altar to the Lord. Then he goes to the middle region of the land of Canaan between Bethel and Ai and he builds another altar to the Lord. And he finally gets to the southern part of the land of Canaan called the Negev. Now, you might be asking, what is the significance of Abram going through the land and building these altars to the Lord? I think it's clear that these altars demonstrate Abram's hope in God fulfilling these promises to give this land to his descendants. In spite of the obstacles that he faces, and, God, and Abram already knows the, the problem uh, of the barrenness of his wife is going to be a major obstacle. And he already understands implicitly there's a problem of sin that needs to be dealt with. 
But there's also another promise, that, uh, another obstacle that is shown to us here in verse 6. Verse 6 says this, that Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, Abram comes here with his family. God promises him uh, to, to show him this land that he's going to give him and his descendants. And he gets there, and he doesn't find what maybe he would have hoped to have found. A vast open country, something easily that they could settle into, where him and his family could just flourish and live in immediately. Instead, what he finds there is that there are people already living in the land. The Canaanites were in the land. And the Canaanites, if you remember, they were from the ungodly line. Canaan was cursed by Noah for the sin of Ham. So Abram gets to this place and he realizes that there are the enemies of God are in this land. And Abram could have been easily shaken. He could have easily turned around and said, this is too hard. There's no way my little family can take possession of this land that's already possessed by the enemies of God. But instead, Abram goes through the land, and he builds these altars to the Lord, dedicating the land to the Lord in hopeful anticipation that the Lord would give this land to him. Now, as Steve has pointed out repeatedly through our study in Genesis, uh, this book was written by Moses hundreds of years after these events actually took place in Genesis. By the time this book is being written, Moses had led the people of Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness, and they were now on the verge of entering the promised land. And the Canaanites were waiting for them there. And you can imagine the fearfulness they felt, the anxiety, the worry. How can we go in and take possession of this land? So when Moses is writing these words in the book of Genesis, he includes this subtle yet deliberate piece of information here in verse 6 about the Canaanites being in the land. And Moses would have used this to encourage and motivate the Israelites to take possession of the land under Joshua because it belonged to them according to the promise given to Abram. And just as Abram put his hope in God by laying claim to the land, by erecting altars to the one true God in the presence of his enemies, Moses would have wanted the people of Israel to hope in God and help them conquer and defeat the Canaanites. So let me just summarize this last point here about Abram's response to God's promise. Abram has his compass. He's got God's word to him. He's got these promises that God has made to him. They point, they're pointing towards where he should go. And, and look at Abram's response. We see in this passage that Abram trusts God when he believes God's promises. We see that Abram obeys God when he leaves all that he has and heads towards the land of Canaan. And we see that he hopes in God when he builds these altars in the land. And he does this in spite Sarai's barrenness and in spite the presence of the Canaanites in the land. Now, likewise, when we fix our eyes on the promises of God, 
It also enables us to trust in God, to obey God, and to hope in God. But how does the promise to Abram apply to us? Well, we already know from this passage that God's promise to Abraham included a promise that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That includes you and me. But how does that work? How does it come to us? These promises to Abram come to us through Jesus Christ. The key to making this connection is found in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul says this. The promises were spoken to Abram and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, singular, meaning one person who is Christ. Now the prevailing understanding when Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians was that the promise of the land was given to the physical descendants of Abraham. We see the effects of that belief today in the battles that happen over that same piece of land in the Middle East. But Paul here is, in Galatians, is pointing to a grammatical issue that has caused people to misunderstand God's promise to Abram. Paul is saying that the promise was not given to Abraham's descendants, plural, but to a descendant, singular. You can go back and look at this in verse 7. It says this, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, singular, I will give this land. So you can already see where this is heading. So it is through Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham, that the promise of the blessings given to Abraham would be expanded to the nations, including you and me. Now, Abram knew that only God could overcome his impossible circumstances, the impossible obstacles of Sarai's barrenness and the presence of the Canaanites in the land. And we'll see how that story unfolds in the next several chapters in Genesis. But there is still the problem of that greatest obstacle I talked about, the sinfulness of Abram and the sinfulness of humanity that stood in the way of God's blessings. But... Praise be to God that through the seed of Abraham, through Jesus Christ, the one to whom these promises were made, that God would ultimately take care of the greatest obstacle that stood between God blessing humanity. Now, it is through the coming of Jesus who left his father's side to take on flesh that he became our substitute for sin. It is through his perfect life his perfect trust in the Father, his perfect obedience to the Father, even unto death on the cross, and his perfect hope in the Father to raise him up from the dead, that the promises given to Abraham are opened up to all who receive Christ by faith. Paul says this in Galatians, just as Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Man, this is just crazy. Just think about this. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, which is the nations, that includes us, by faith, preached the gospel 
God was preaching the good news beforehand to Abraham, giving him hope, seeing that in you and through you the nations shall be blessed, so that all who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What an amazing promise that we see fulfilled in Christ. Now, we, like Abraham, are counted righteous before God, not because of anything we have done, but solely because we have put our faith in Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Now that the remedy of sin is in place, we see how Jesus is the fulfillment and the recipient of these promises. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, who is blessed with the great name. In fact, he's the one who is given the name above all names. Jesus is also made into a great nation through his body, the church, which consists of all people from all nations who put their faith and trust in Christ. Now those who are in Christ receive these spiritual blessings in Christ. And when Christ returns, we will inherit not just the land of Canaan, not just this little piece of land in the Middle East, but we are going to inherit the whole earth in the new heavens and new earth where God will dwell with man in unhindered fellowship and blessed communion. That's what's happening in this passage. Now let's consider a few points of application. And and as we do, I think the big idea from this passage for us is this. You can think about the compass analogy here. I've tried to uh, write it in that fashion. God's word points us to his faithful promises to us in Christ, which helps us trust him, obey him, and hope in him. Let me say that again. God's word points us to his faithful promises to us in Christ, which helps us trust him, obey him, and hope in him. Let me consider each of those briefly, just for some application points. Now, God's promises in Scripture reassure us that he is faithful and good. So we must trust him. When we feel like our besetting sins overwhelm us, we must trust him when he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is a promise to us. When we have wandered away from him, as we are all prone to do, we must trust him when he says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. When we are fearful and anxious about the future, we must trust him when he says, fear not. I have redeemed you. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, it will not consume you. You will not be burned. Brothers and sisters, are you aware of the great and amazing promises that God has made to us in Christ? We desperately need to know his promises so that we can cling to his promises. And just as a compass points north, God's word points us to his promises to help us trust him. So do you know his promises? Are you looking daily to cling to his promises? Secondly, looking to his promises also helps us obey him. We saw how, we saw how Abram's faith was demonstrated by his obedience. James chapter 2 tells us, 
that Abraham's faith was demonstrated by his works. Now, this highlights the reality that faith apart from works is dead. The author of Hebrews also picks up on this when he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of, to the place where he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in the foreign land. Notice just in this passage the link between faith and obedience. Now, while our obedience does not add anything to make us right before God, only our faith in Christ does, yet, if our faith does not result in obedience, it proves that our faith is not genuine. Abraham's faith resulted in obedience to God. So what specific promise helps us in our obedience? Well, I think the promise of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who convicts us of our sin, is the greatest promise to help us in our obedience to Christ. Now, while our obedience is never perfect, it can be a genuine obedience because God has given us His Spirit to help us obey His commandments. The promise of His Spirit now helps us see that His commandments are good. And now we have new desires to obey the Lord, even when it might seem difficult. The path of obedience for the follower of Christ is a path that leads to joy. So let me ask you this question. Do you see God's commands as good? And do you see your obedience to Him as a means of experiencing joy? God has revealed many commandments to us in his word. So let me ask you, how is the promise of the Holy Spirit helping you in your walk of obedience? Do you listen to his voice? Listen to his voice. Do not harden your hearts. It might be that the Lord through his spirit is calling you to a greater devotion to him, to prioritize corporate worship or to prioritize family devotions. It might be that the Spirit is convicting you of sexual sin that displeases the Lord. It might be that He is calling you to ask your spouse or child for forgiveness because of your harsh words to them. Or maybe He's calling you not to be tight-fisted with your money and possessions and instead be generous. Now, all of these acts of obedience ought to be rooted in our faith. They are not simply rules to follow, but a means by which we might experience God's pleasure, His presence, and His blessings in our lives and relationships. God's commands are given for our good and ultimately for our joy. But you might be wondering, well, what happens when I sin? And what happens when I fall short in my obedience to God? John gives us an amazing promise, another promise to help us in our obedience. He says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, which is all of us, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What an amazing promise to keep our eyes on as we seek to obey God. Finally, the promises of God help us hope in Him. The promises of God help us hope in Him. 
The author of Hebrews shows us how the genuine faith of Abraham led to his hope in the unfulfilled promises of God. Abraham had faith that the things that would not be fulfilled in his lifetime would one day be fulfilled. And I love this passage. Let's, let's, let's consider this for a moment. Hebrews chapter 12. This is in the great chapter of faith, the hall of fame of faith, as it's called. It says this, these all, talking about Abraham and his family, they died in faith, not having received the things promised to them. Isn't that crazy? Things that God promised did not come true in their lifetime. <laughs> but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Isn't that an amazing promise? We learn here from the author of Hebrews, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Abram's hope was in something more than inheriting a little piece of land. And Abram, in erecting these altars in the land as an act of worship, pointed to the reality that even though he did not receive the things promised in his lifetime, he hoped for a better country, a heavenly country where God would dwell with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. Brothers and sisters, just like Abram was a stranger in exile in the land of Canaan, we are also strangers and exiles on this earth. And just like Abram, we walk with faith and obedience, and we also walk with hope. No matter what is going on in our life today, no matter what's going on in the country, no matter what we see in the news, no matter what's going on around the world, we look forward and greet from afar the fulfillment of God's promises. And the greatest of God's promise will be fulfilled when we see Jesus face to face when we behold his beauty, when we enjoy his presence, and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Our deepest wounds will be healed and every deathly disease will be done away with forever. So let me ask you this question. Is the hope of heaven and the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises something that grounds your present experience? I think for me it is the greatest source of hope in the midst of this world that is so riddled with sin. And so we wait, and so we wait with hope, knowing that even though we don't know how particular trials or particular circumstances will turn out, we do know that God is preparing a place for us where we will enjoy Him and His people forever. So my prayer this morning is that the Spirit would help us fix our eyes on the faithful promises of God to us in Christ, and may He help us trust Him and obey Him and put our hope in Him.